thank you to the choir for singing by faith. That was a request that I had. And uh, it's a a wonderful song that goes through the whole story of God's saving of his people and how he calls his people to walk by faith. And um, that song says, we're going to keep doing that, which is one of those, I call it an aspirational song. We're singing what we want to become. And that's part of the purpose of song and worship is it shapes us to be what God wants us to be. So thank you for uh, taking that on. For the, for the pastoral prayer this morning, I'm going to do something that I found very helpful in my own prayer life. And that is to take the Lord's Prayer, which we've already prayed the actual words of, and use it as a template um, for our prayer time together. So if it sounds like my prayer is patterned after the Lord's Prayer, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And uh, I think that's a a very helpful thing. If we don't know how to pray for somebody, we don't know what their needs are, missionaries on the field, to be able to pray the Lord's Prayer into their life, as I'll try to do for us this morning, uh, is a very helpful thing to do. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, what a privilege we have to call you Father. To know the intimacy. I pray that this congregation of your people would know the nearness, the closeness, the care of you as their Heavenly Father. And that you would work in them a deep desire to honor, to hallow, to honor your name. To lift you high above everything else as you deserve and to find great praise and worship in that place. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this congregation of your people as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you that you have an unfolding story for your people that continues to this present day, and it includes those who are gathered right here, right now. I pray, Father, that you would show them your will, that you would enable them to find the places in their lives and families in this church and community and beyond where they can be instruments of your will and your kingdom becoming more fully manifest in the lives of people and in this place. And Lord, we do pray for your will to be done in their ongoing search for a new senior pastor that you would be leading and guiding through the human processes of the man you've prepared discovering you've prepared him for here and of the committee the search committee and the session and the congregation discovering and confirming and extending that call Father, we pray that you would give us this day your daily bread. Father, there have been needs that have been shared, including this widow, Janice, that you, we pray you would care for her and bring your people alongside of her and pour out your blessing in the funeral service later this week. May she know your peace. May she know your nearness. Give her what she needs and other family and friends as well. Father, we 
we are dependent upon you for all things. We fight that. We push against that. But ultimately, teach us to delight in the fact that we depend upon you. And to receive from you. To be blessed by you. And to take your provisions and share them and be a blessing to others. Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We pray, Father, that you would work in this congregation uh, tender, forgiving hearts toward one another and others. That those places where there may be bitterness and discord, that you would stir by your Holy Spirit a desire to connect with people, maybe where there have been fairly long-standing differences, and to acknowledge the need for harmony, for unity, for repentance, and forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would do that work in these, your people. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we thank you that your spirit in us, your people, is more powerful than anything, including any temptation that the evil one would bring our way. Father, help us in the moments of temptation to take the hand of Jesus and ask him to pull us out of it and to remind us of who we are and whose we are. We pray that in the battle that takes place in the spiritual realms, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, that though the final outcome is clear and the death blow has been dealt in the cross and resurrection, in our day-to-day life, we pray that we would be those who take hold of Jesus and push back against the evil one in the kingdom of darkness, not only in our lives personally, but as a church engaging the world. May we engage it with truth and love. Father, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We thank you that we serve such a great God. Lift our eyes indeed to see Jesus, to see your greatness, to see your glory, to see that you rule over the nations, including ours. To give us eyes of faith, to see the realities that are not yet fully implemented. We long for the day of Christ's return. And may, by your empowering grace, may we be found faithfully serving you, either when we die to go to be with you, or when that day comes if we're alive when Christ returns. So we commit this time to you. We thank you that even today, as we will hear your word and come to your table, that, as the psalmist says in 23, you prepare a table before us, even in the presence of enemies all around us. May we be refreshed and renewed, and may our faith be strengthened, that we might go from this place with a passion to accomplish your will and your kingdom, your mission, in and through our lives in this seemingly at times insignificant people that we are and place that we live. But we're your people 
This is your place. So work through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a privilege to be back. When I was here last time, I was recently named interim president. And uh, now I'm in my second year as real president. The, the students called me I-Prez when I was interim president. Small I, capital P. And so now some are calling me real Prez, you know, small R, capital P. So uh, whether I'm I or real, um, I'm here, okay? And uh, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to serve at Covenant Seminary. I've now begun my 16th year there, um, which is hard to believe. Um, But the purpose of Covenant Seminary is to glorify the triune God by training his servants to walk in God's grace, minister God's word, equip God's people, all for God's mission. Um, The shorthand that I use is that we're equipping pastors and leaders for God's church and kingdom. And it's a heavy responsibility and a great privilege. And uh, so I'm thankful to be able to come and be a part of the life of your church for a couple of days. And we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the first 28 verses. This is one of my favorite narrative passages in the Bible. It's about a king named Jehoshaphat. I also used to like that name when I was learning Bible stories. When I was going, what's this bat? You know, no, Jehoshaphat, that's the guy. Okay, Jehoshaphat. And I know some say Jehoshaphat and so on. I'm going to choose to say Jehoshaphat. Okay, if you're a Jehoshaphat fan, then it's the same guy, all right? Um, I get that with my last name, Dalby and Dalby, so I'm fine either way, even though I prefer Dalby. So, uh, okay, what I'm going to do, since it's a long narrative passage, is read a portion of it and preach, and then read another portion and preach and go through the passage that way to break it up a bit. It is like a drama. It's, a, it's an unfolding story. And if we could get ourselves inside of the story as the original participants, which is an important thing to try to do, and hopefully we can identify with the folks then and draw applications to our lives in similar situations, though different. What I'd like to ask you before I read the first portion is this. What crisis, major, mini, Is there a middle crisis? Are you facing today? What are the things that seem impossible as you look to starting your week tomorrow? It could be a health issue. It could be a financial issue. It could be um, just family dynamics, um, fear of the future, um, any number of things that you could be facing right now. Certainly as a congregation, If you reflect back on not too much of the recent history, you've had a pastor, assistant pastor, and an interim pastor all be with you, and now they're no longer with you. That's a challenging place. Having spent some time with some of your elders yesterday, um, they're feeling the, the weightiness of the responsibility of shepherding this flock without a pastor right now. Pray for them. Encourage them. And this is part of the DNA of the church right now. And God is working in your midst right now to be able to see that and trust him. But here's what King Jehoshaphat came up with. 
first of all, um, we read this in verses 1 through 4. After this, and we'll talk in a moment about what the this was that this is after. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Well, here's King Jehoshaphat. Things are going along quite well. Thank you very much. He is a king that is described in the three chapters prior to chapter 20 as a king whom the Lord was with. He is a pious king who has given great wealth and great power. He walked in the ways of his father David, which is a code name for he was a good king. He had a heart devoted to the ways of the Lord. He took away the places of false worship. They're called the high places where they had these bales and Asherah poles that were part of the worship. He tore them down. He's described as a shepherd of Israel. He's a king that didn't just have power and strong decision-making power, but he shepherded. He cared for the people. He sent Levites. Remember, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Uh, the priests dealt with the temple and the worship of God through the sacrificial system. The Levites ministered the word of God. They taught the people from God's word. They prayed for the people. They were like pastors out in the different parts of Judah. And he sent Levites and teachers into all the towns of Judah. And they taught the people. He had a seasoned army, if you add up all the numbers, of 1.2 million men in his army. Sort of tuck that away for a moment. It'll become important, I think, as we analyze this passage we're looking at in chapter 20. The Lord delivered him from his enemies, and even when he made a foolish alliance with King Ahab, married to the infamous Jezebel, he went and formed an alliance and went to battle against the Syrians with King Ahab. And somehow King uh, Ahab convinced uh, Jehoshaphat to dress up in all of the king's colorful robes and go into battle. So Ahab's idea, and Ahab dressed like a common soldier. What do you think Ahab's idea was? Well, if they're going to shoot a king, it's not going to be me. It's going to be my buddy down here from the south. Okay? And so that was Ahab's design. What Jehoshaphat was thinking, I have no idea. But at any rate, uh, the description of the battle is that a, that a random arrow, quote-unquote, was shot, and it didn't hit King Jehoshaphat. It hit, hit King Ahab in the one weak spot of his armor, and he died a little while later. Well, I think Jehoshaphat was probably cured of such alliances going forward, and it's really the only negative thing we see um, about him in the, the discussion. He also brought great judicial reform to the towns of Judah. So now, after this... a coalition of armies come up to do battle with Jehoshaphat and his people. Now, have you ever faced a time in your life where you're walking along, you're serving the Lord faithfully, things be, seem to be going well, and 
you're thinking they should be going well. After all, I'm serving the Lord faithfully. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden, three armies form a coalition to come against you all at once. It's not this little thing. It's sort of like, whoa, where did that come from? And what am I going to do now? Okay, that's what Jehoshaphat uh, is experiencing and facing. Now, what would you do if you had a seasoned army ready to go to battle of 1.2 million men? Now, some of us might say, an army's coming. I have a good army of 1.2 million men. We don't even have to pray about this one. Just send the army. That's why God gave us the army. Now, God's battle plan could have been send the army. But Jehoshaphat is not God. He's only the king of Judah. And so Jehoshaphat decides he's going to seek the Lord to figure out what to do and not presume out of his own resources, even God-given resources, that he knew what to do. So he calls Judah together. He declares a fast and an assembly in Jerusalem to seek help from the Lord. And so all Judah comes and, and, and they arrive with their wives and their children and as it says, and their little ones. That means the, the little ones, the, the children are the ones in hand and the little ones are the ones in arms or on the backpack or the front pack or however uh, they carried their babies um, back then. So all of Judah comes to Jerusalem and they humble themselves before the Lord and seek his will. We have a professor at uh, Covenant Seminary by the name of Jerem Bars who's our resident scholar for the Francis Schaeffer Institute. And he often quotes Francis Schaeffer with this quote. He said, what we're trying to do is not difficult. It is impossible. Now that's a good posture before the Lord. Because what's impossible with us is possible with the Lord. But notice, impossible does not mean resignation or just saying whatever. It's actually, it's, it's not a passivity. It's an active engagement of the Lord with a deep faith like the choir sang about. It's the king saying, we're all going to gather at the temple and cry out to God in prayer. Um, I used to think, and I've been around people who think, um, when you're trying to figure out what to do and you say, well, let's pray. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to pray. Let's get that over with so we can get on to action. Okay? Prayer is the first action step. And don't ever forget that. Because it's out of the action step of prayer that God then leads to further action steps as we see, as we now read verses 5 through 13. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of God in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard, which he had been doing the repairs for, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it 
and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress. And you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. In 1980, my dad, who was a pastor, was 53 at the time. I was 28, which you don't have to worry about the math. That means I'm 62 today. Okay. Um, my dad died suddenly of a heart attack in a hot August day in 1980 after uh, playing golf, while playing golf by himself. And uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know what to do. At the phone call, I was living in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. He died in the Kansas City, Missouri area. And um, I, I felt this was a sudden crisis, unexpected. And I, uh, I cried out to the Lord. I didn't use exactly use Jehoshaphat's prayer, but something like this. I don't know what to do, Lord. Got my mom, who two days later turned 47, two younger brothers. Um, I just turned my eyes to the Lord and asked Him to show me how I, what I should do. And, uh, he led me through that time. I ended up giving a word of uh, testimony about my dad and the gospel in his life at his funeral service. He gave me the emotional composure to do that, which included some weeping while I was doing it, which I felt the Lord's going to bring weeping when I'm talking about something, then the Lord will bring weeping and I'm not going to apologize for it. That's part of what he's doing. It goes against sort of manliness in some circles. But if Jesus wept over Jerusalem and Jesus wept over Lazarus' death, then certainly I can weep over such things as well. But here we have this crisis that comes and this prayer is the pouring out of the king's heart before God. Now think about this. Think about his transparency, his vulnerability. He's the king. He's supposed to know what to do. He's always supposed to have complete composure. He calls everybody together and then leads in prayer the conclusion of which is we don't know what to do and our eyes are on you. And then he waits to see what God will do. And most of us who are leaders in whether it's the president of a seminary or an elder of a church or you're a parent in your home or a school teacher of children or people that work or used to work for you when you were um, in business and so on. It's like we can't ever show that we don't have it all together. 
we know exactly what to do, or all of a sudden we won't be looked to as leaders. Well, here's Jehoshaphat. He calls the people together and he prays. And I love his prayer. Um, it's, It's a model prayer. It's a prayer that many would call a prayer of lament over a bad situation, a crying out to God, saying, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen? We see this in the Psalms. There are many psalms of lament. It's an important part of our prayer life. To lay it out before God. Isaiah and King Hezekiah were prayer partners. Okay, the prophet and the king. And you have 185,000 soldiers from Assyria that have surrounded Jerusalem. And they go up to the temple. This is what Solomon said to do when the temple was built. If there's plague or pestilence or foreign armies, come where I put my name. Come to my house and cry out to me in your despair. And so Hezekiah and Isaiah, King Sennacherib from Assyria, had written these really nasty letters about how horrible the God of Israel was. He could not save his people from his mighty hand as king of Assyria. They laid those letters out in front of God. And they said, Lord, look what he's saying about you. Are you going to let this go un, without any attention, without your pushing back against it. I mean, that's my paraphrase of the prayer. That's exactly how they said it. But it's uh, along those lines. It's a prayer of lament. It's a crying out to God. And so he starts by saying, you are the Lord of the nations. Revelation 1, 6 says, Jesus Christ is the ruler of the nations. We sit here in this place today concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan and Ukraine and Israel and we could go on and on. We know that even though it doesn't appear that he's acting like the Lord of the nations and the ruler of the nations, he is nonetheless the crowned, at the right hand of God the Father, seated king, warrior, and and tender shepherd savior who is ruling over the nations. And we take confidence in that. And we ask the Lord to give us eyes of faith to see that when the newspaper doesn't give us much to see that from. So then he says, then he rehearses. Now he's saying, God, you are great. You are powerful. You're sovereign. You're the ruler. And then he says, and now we're going to look at how you've dealt with your people. You led us up through your promises made to your friend, our father Abraham. And we came into this land and we drove out the people and we built this house for your name. Where you said to come to you when things are difficult. And so we're at the temple and we're appealing to this place of grace and deliverance that you told us to come to. You see, the army alone, the human resources alone, are not necessarily God's means of grace and deliverance unless God directs their usage. Here we are, Lord. Hear us. Verse uh, 9. Hear us and save us. And then he goes on to appeal at the temple crying out to God. He says, now I've got a little bit of a problem here. The people are coming up to destroy us are the people you told us not to destroy when we came into the land. And we didn't. It's almost, if I could dare say as part of this prayer of lament, what is up with that? Did you ever ask God that question? I'm sure in your heart you have. If you didn't use the words, and guess what? You didn't have to put it into words for him to know you felt that way. And he actually invites us to cry out to him. You're the great God. 
You've worked wonderfully in our lives. Now this is happening. What are you up to? Why is this happening? I would have people would come to me when I was in pastoral ministry and, you know, they were really upset with God and they couldn't quite tell him or tell me. I said, it sounds like you're really upset with God. They said, well, yeah. I said, have you told him that? I said, well, no, I can't tell God I'm upset with him. I said, do you think he doesn't know? And then I said, do you think his shoulders are big enough that he could bear you telling him that you're struggling with him? It's far better than telling anybody else you're struggling with him. Even though I'm glad you're here talking to me about that. So I can help direct you to take those prayers to the Lord. So he puts it out there in front of the Lord. And he says this, and it's, God, will you not judge them? And then I'm thinking about this army, 1.2 million men who are part of this gathering. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. And then this, which is, I think is one of the most beautiful prayers of the Bible. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are in you, Lord. Isn't that a bit of a description of this congregation right now? We don't, we don't know what to do. I mean, we have a search committee, and we have a session, and we have people that come in and preach like I'm doing today. But we've got a deal here, Lord. <laughs> we need pastoral leadership. And we're not, we don't know who that pastor is. And we don't quite know what to do, but we're looking to you. Now, that doesn't mean a search committee suddenly disbands and quits. And we stand here and wait for the guy to come walking in and say, Hi, I'm your new pastor. Okay? God uses human means. Don't hear what I'm saying to deny that. But even the human means have their hands like this constantly. Saying, Lord, show us. What would we do next? How would we go forward from here? And that's true for all of us in the places where people are looking to us to be instruments of God's work. So there he is. He looks to the Lord. And he waits. I mean, you know, as a dad and a husband, when there's family difficulties, I, I, I feel it's my responsibility to have answers and to know what to do next. And if I model to my children as they're growing up that I always know what to do, I always have it together, I have all wisdom, I know when to act next, what am I doing? I'm actually putting my play, myself in the place where only God should be. Now, I'm called upon to make some important decisions as president of Covenant Seminary, as husband of Beth and parents to my children when they're growing up. And that's hard, and we have to do them. But it's on the other side of saying, Lord, show me what to do. It's not with the presumption. I already always know what to do as only God does. And for our, our children or the people that we're in spheres of influence for, as they see us looking to the Lord. I mean, my wife and I teach this class on gospel-centered parenting, and there's something about before our children have any idea who God is, they, they get in their minds that before every meal, their parents don't eat as soon as the food's on the plate, and they start talking to somebody who's not in the room. And they begin to sense that there's somebody that's over this family, even though they don't have cognitive capacity yet to put that all together and then as they do you inform them 
about something they've already observed and to some degree experienced. So here we are. Jehoshaphat is admitting his weakness, his dependence, and he's crying out to the Lord with expectancy, with confidence, with hope, but dependent upon the Lord. God, I think, delights in such prayers. In the New Testament, here are a couple of prayers that I think God loves to hear his people pray. I believe, help my unbelief. I think God loves to hear that prayer. And he'll help us with our unbelief when we pray it. Or, Lord, increase our faith. The vision you're putting in front of us is bigger than the faith we currently have to walk into it. So increase our faith that would match what you're leading us toward. My prayer for this congregation is that you would be willing to both acknowledge in appropriate ways that you don't know what to do, and at the same time to ask God to increase your faith, to help your unbelief, to provide in ways that are consistent with his promises that you hold on to. Well, moving along, God answers Jehoshaphat's prayer. Verses 14 to 17. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Bananiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. God answers his prayer. There he is waiting in front of all of Israel. The men, the women, the children, the little ones. Okay. I wonder how long a silence there was between, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. It says, then, the Spirit of the Lord, is it immediate or not? I don't know. A few seconds would have been hard for me of silence. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon, actually, a Levite, one of the temple musician descendants, and gave him a word of prophecy from the Lord. And the word was, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Notice it's the beginning of the, of the prophetic word, and it's at the end of the prophetic word. God has to keep telling us, don't be afraid, and don't be discouraged. We're prone to fear and discouragement, aren't we? And when we aren't, we're probably pretending we're not. And so he, this is usually the first words out of God's messenger, whether it's an angel, whether it's a prophet, or whether it's Jesus himself, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. God has a plan. The prayer of lament is met with what biblical scholars call a salvation oracle. An oracle is just a word from God about his deliverance and salvation. God's going to win the battle. It's not yours this time. 
You don't have to send the army this time. God's going to do it directly. But you're going to be there watching them. You're not going to get one person coming back from the battlefield reporting that he won the victory. You're all going to go out like you're going to fight the battle, but you're not going to fight the battle. You're going to watch God fight the battle. The Lord will be with you. I prayed in the in either the invocation or the pastoral prayer today about delighting in our dependence upon God. We were designed, even before sin entered the world, to depend upon God. And now, not only as creatures, but as sinful creatures, how much more? And so how can God work in us when we're constantly resisting depending on Him? Thanks, Lord, I'll take it from here. Got me through the crisis. We'll do it now. I have a friend who, who began to pray for me and himself that we would learn to delight in God's design dependency instead of fighting it or pushing back on ourselves. Isn't this great? God's designed us to depend upon him in this situation. Let's see what he does. So, God's people go out. Now, notice it says tomorrow. Let's assume this is a Sunday that God's bringing this word to his people here at Lake Oconee about this thing you're all fearful about tomorrow. All right? And he brings a word that says, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. I'm going to defeat him. The battle's mine, not yours. Tomorrow you're going to go out and face them and watch me win the battle. Now, you go to bed tonight, and you say, tomorrow, the Lord said he was going to win the battle. Was that, was that really a true prophet? Did, did, are we sure this was really a word from the Lord? And then you try to get some sleep, and you get up in the morning thinking, wow, I really felt strong when I left church yesterday about how God's going to win this battle. I'm not feeling so good this morning as we have to go out and face these armies. Is he really going to do it? Is it an ambush? What's going to happen? I mean, you can imagine things that people are saying or the husbands and the parents are saying in the privacy of their portion of the one-room house, probably, um, hoping the kids won't hear their fears. At any rate, they, this is what happens. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face. It's tomorrow now. Um, well, no, it isn't. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground. Verse 18, all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. That's what happened after the prophet spoke. Then verse 20. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, this is a sign of a good leader. He knows they're struggling. He knows they must have some doubts. He says, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God. It's a renewing of faith constantly, okay? Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. So what does the king do? The shepherd of Israel. The one who's in the line of David's offspring that ultimately will produce King Jesus. He says, have faith in the Lord. Have faith in his prophets. 
And he comes up with a battle plan. We are going to send the musicians in the front line ahead of the soldiers. Now, why would he do that? Remember what I said about how the singing of words touches our whole being in a way that it's formative. It stirs and strengthens our faith. And so what are they going to sing? They're going to sing a simple, repetitive chorus. You know the 7-Eleven songs? They sing the same seven words 11 times that a lot of people are critical of with contemporary music and worship and so on. Sometimes they're very helpful. Sometimes it's better not to have a 15-stanza complex theological hymn to sing when you're going out to battle. It's good to have something the children can sing. And guess what they wanted to be reminded of? One thing as they go to strengthen their faith. Give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to win the victory. So, okay, I take this step. His love endures forever. Really? Yes. And you keep singing the song, and eventually you get to where you have to go. Okay? So that's the battle plan. And it's successful as the Lord connects their singing. Notice what it says in verse 22 as we wrap up. As they began to sing and praise, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After this, after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder. They found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Baraka, which means praise, where they praised the Lord. This is why it's called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. The Lord strengthened his people and delivered his people. He connected their singing expressing their faith in his plan with the defeating of the three armies. They gathered, and they never stopped praising God as they were gathering the plunder, as they got back to the temple in Jerusalem. If you know anything about guitars, they probably had their baby tailor guitars, you know, the kind that you can travel with easily. When they were out on the battlefield and when they got back to the temple, they got out the harps and the lutes and all the, you know, the equipment that couldn't leave the temple because it was too big and too precious or whatever, and they really had a praise service when they got back. God showed up, and he accomplished what he promised he would. And this king, Jehoshaphat, though imperfectly, nonetheless reflects who and what Jesus came to be and to do. And he's the one who empowers us, Jesus does, to have this kind of faith. To look to the Lord in times of crisis. And whatever you're facing right now, we sort of know the general things the congregation is facing. But the specific things in your life that maybe no one else knows about. Look to the Lord. 
And I would encourage you to find a couple of trusted people to look to the Lord together with, to cry out to him that he might meet you in those places of financial or family or neighborhood or workplace or in your own heart or health struggles or whatever the case may be. That you would be able to pray, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you with hope and expectancy. That through your Son, our Savior, the risen King, who comes to us as a tender shepherd, will accomplish and show us. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. An event that happened a long, long time ago that has such wonderful relevance and life for us today as we bring it on into the New Testament and on into the time between Christ's ascension and Pentecost and his second coming to where we live right now. The story continues to unfold. The enemies are different, but the dynamics of faith and trust in you and your empowering grace to make us the people you want us to be continues. Work that gospel grace and power in this the congregation of your people, we pray in Jesus' name.